Father, what a privilege it is to worship you. We thank you for casting our eyes up upon the cross, upon the Lamb slain, though now standing, receiving praise and adoration, glory and honor by myriads and myriads and myriads of creatures. And Lord, it was for humanity alone that you sent your Son who became one of us, um, who lived the life we could not live and died the death that we should die, rose again and is coming back and right now is ruling and reigning and receiving worship. Would you receive our worship this morning? Um, and as we turn to the word in just a few minutes, would, would you receive the worship of our um, tunnel vision focus on you? We thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege to gather. Lord, we come as recovering idolaters, always turning the wrong direction. My heart is so prone to wander, Lord. It's so prone to find uh, my ups and downs and things of this world. Um, so, Lord, yes, would you break open the smelling salts and awaken us out of our stupor, out of our simplicity, out of our ignorance, and show us the greatness of your glory as expressed most viscerally at the cross of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys can grab a seat, just a few. It almost feels weird to go into announcements after singing those two songs. Thank you guys so much for the scripture in those songs. But I just want to spend a few minutes making some announcements before we release the kids for children's ministry and we dive into God's word. Uh, first of all, um, Josiah Glandon was born, I believe it was 1022 to be exact, Friday night. They are doing well, so we praise God for that. Men, a reminder that we're going to gather 8 a.m. next Saturday for our men's ministry. Pastor Charles will be leading us through a study of 2 Timothy 3, Saturday, 8 a.m. Ladies of the church, let me remind you that today there will be a communication coming out about some upcoming ladies' ministries opportunities. And then finally... Two weeks from yesterday is our next Beautiful Feet outreach event just down the street. We'll give you more details. The first one was really awesome. Looking forward to getting out again as well. Let's let the kids uh, go upstairs for their ministry time, greet one another, and we'll dive into God's Word in just a moment.
And we're going to jump into God's Word. If you want to take your Bibles, open up to Proverbs chapter 1 and also 1 Kings chapter 4, which I'll reference in just a moment. Um, as you're doing, let me pray one more time, and we are going to jump into Proverbs chapter 1. Father, I simply ask that you would help me to make this truth plain and that your spirit would drive it deep into our hearts, that we would see that uh, we have in Christ all things for life and godliness. And I ask this in his name. Amen. Oh, yes. And to make sure everyone has a handout, I think that'll be helpful. Yeah, let me. If you need a handout, just kind of raise your hand. Handouts, I think, will be helpful just for some of the stuff we are going to be looking at this morning. Again, worship team, that was a powerful first two song set. That was really great. Looking forward uh, to what you guys have for us afterwards. So. I believe that so often, so many Christians look in so many directions for help with and answers to life's problems. And I believe that in looking the many directions, we often unwittingly, inadvertently adopt, imbibe, embrace solutions and strategies and ideologies that are actually taken straight out of the fallen world that we live in. And sometimes smeared with just enough Christianity on top to make it seem Christian to those who do not know the word well, though it is the farthest thing from Christian. Danny Aiken had it right when he said, sure, as God's people, we would affirm the Bible is God's word, it's authoritative, but somewhere along the way, we have bought into the misconception that the, that the Bible is not really great at helping us address the nitty-gritty stuff of life. And thus, we look in tons of other directions. I think there's something to that quote. I think, I think we can all reflect that. And I think I can prove it with a question. I want you to think of the last problem that you ever had, not that you would have any problems in this carefree life. The last problem you had, though, be it habitual, vocational, relational, yes, even emotional and mental, and on and on. Take the last problem that was really smacking you in the face and digging into your heart. Did you dive into God's Word with the same intensity that you might say uh, relentlessly surf the internet seeking a product and, and making research and comparisons and all that to make sure you got just the right one and the best one for you. With the same intensity, you might surf the internet researching a place that you would like to visit. Did you dive into God's word with the kind of tunnel vision that we all have when we're locked into a ball game or a, a, a TV series or a movie series? I think I know what the answer for most of us would be, myself included. The truth is, we often run down to Egypt for answers to life's 
problems and setting up, instead of running up to Israel's king in the word of God. Now that is, of course, not at all to say that we can't get help in many directions to life's problems. We can, of course. There is something called common grace. But the issue is this. Do I look first and foremost and most fervently to God's words for the problems of life? Well, today, as you know, we are diving into a series that will take us up to December through the book of Proverbs. And as I've been preparing for this series, really honestly for, for a few years, but specifically the last few months, I have become, and you've heard me share this perhaps, utterly convinced that a lot of the problems we face in life could be outright avoided and that the impact of the problems that can't be avoided, because after all, we are fallen people living in a fallen world, the impact of those kinds of problems would be mitigated and diminished and lessened somewhat if we listened to the book of Proverbs. Now, you just heard me say the word listen, right? That is a constant refrain through the book of Proverbs. Hear or listen. And the bottom line is, fools don't and the wise do. So today we kick off this series in the book of Proverbs called Wisdom or Folly. And I open up with this sermon, Wisdom or Folly, Proverbs Introduced. And I really believe that if you are willing, today could mark, a it's, a, it's a beautiful opportunity to mark a new chart, and chart a new course, a new way of dealing with life's problems by First and foremost, and most fervently, looking to God and to his word. So we dive into verse 1. He says, to know, I'm sorry, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. Now Solomon, as you read through this book, you'll know is, is not the only contributor. There are other writers, and, and, and we'll come across them as we march through the book. But he is the most prominent one, the most famous one, and he actually contributes the largest amount of material. Now, Proverbs written primarily by what was known as, except for one other person, the wisest man that ever lived. He reminds us, however, Solomon does, that you can dispense great wisdom and not necessarily all the time live by it yourself. For example, in this book, I think it's chapter 5-ish, he tells husbands to, um, let's say this very generically, uh, to find, uh, find, their, um, find their joy in their wife and not other, some other fountain, right? You remember that part. That's the condensed, safe version right now, okay? Um, and yet, he had tons of wives, right? And no doubt, some of them were according to a political alliance and the strategy of the day. Others, I'm sure, he found pleasure in them, but all of them wrong. He wasn't great always at listening to his own advice, just like we're not. That said, he was known as the wisest man that ever lived. And I just want to read, I asked you to open up to 1 Corinthians 4. If not, I can just read this paragraph for you. This is kind of the bio of the guy who's the prominent contributor to the book of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that 
Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Heman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, some of which are in the book of Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He also spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. From beasts to fields and everything else. Solomon is, is, is a great example in this, in this regard. He did not want to, though he did in some places, he did not want to have a compartmentalized view of God. Rather, he wanted to see all of life and all of creation from the lens of the creator God that he did worship. Now, we're going to answer three basic questions this morning. The first question will kind of set us up just to understand aright how to read the book of Proverbs. Number one, we want to answer the question, what, in fact, is a proverb? We, we use a lot of expressions, but what do they mean? And I have five Ps to help answer the question, what is a proverb? First of all, a proverb is pithy. It's a pithy sentence. Well, what does pithy mean? You better define that if you're going to use that. I'm trying to just do all Ps, so stay with me. A pithy statement is a concise, forceful, expressive illustrative statement, a pithy statement, so that it is more easily remembered. We have our own Proverbs. A stitch in time saves nine. A penny wise and a pound foolish. Thank you, Arpith. We're having a great Bible study this morning. Um, an apple a day, is this true, Dr. Haber? No, it's not, it keeps it dark. Oh well, at least it gets us eating apples. So here, here, here's a pithy um, biblical proverb. This, this one's very memorable. A gold, I think it's Proverbs 11, 22. Um, like a gold ring in a pig's snout, you can see that right now, a pig with a gold ring in it, is a beautiful woman without discretion. It's a pithy statement. Second of all, it is poetry. Now, po Hebrew poetry has tons, tons and tons of poetic devices, alliteration, which I'm doing a little bit this morning, assonance, rhyme, meter, other poetic features that don't always translate that smoothly from the Hebrew into the English language that we're familiar with. There are tons and tons of ways you could categorize the different poetic devices, but I just want to give you four primary poetic devices used in the book of Proverbs. First of all, there is something called parallelism, parallelism, in which the second line of that particular proverb either repeats and sometimes expands upon the first line. For example, Proverbs 16, 18, a well-known proverb, pride goes before destruction, first line, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So that's parallelism. Then you have something called synthetic parallelism, which I just call it contrasting parallelism, in which line, the second line contrasts with the first line. 
One of the most well-known Proverbs, Proverbs 11.1, 1, a wise son brings his father joy, contrasting line, but a foolish son brings his mother grief. That's contrasting parallelism. You'll find a lot of that. Then you have something called emblematic parallelism, which means they use that figurative um, metaphor or illustration, all kinds of, for instance, Proverbs 16.20 says, without wood, so you think of a fire now, a fire dies down, likewise, without gossiping, a coral ceases. Then you have this, not just Proverbs 26.20, but Proverbs 25.28, which I have to go back to a lot. It says, like a city with its walls broken down is a man who lacks self-control, or some versions, a man who cannot control his temper. Then you have this, Proverbs 27, 15, another example of emblematic parallelism. It says, like the dripping, drip, drip, drip of a leaky roof in a continual rainstorm is, it says, a quarrelsome wife. Then, fourth of all, you have better than Proverbs. That's pretty self-explanatory. Something is better than something else. And quite simply, it says in Proverbs 16, 16, as an example, how much better is it to get wisdom than to, to get gold? Man, may we really believe that, by the way. So that's just some poetic devices. I hope this doesn't seem like a lecture right now, but I'm just trying to get us familiar with how to best read this book. Third of all, it's very practical. God doesn't just care about the big picture things in our life, and he does. He also cares about where life happens in the seemingly mundane, everyday kinds of things. Ray Ortland put it this way. God cares, yes, that we understand the massive truths of our existence, but he also cares about the nuances that make a difference in our everyday relationships and experiences. He seriously does. So he talks about stuff from dinner tables to joy and laughter to even how we do business with scales. For instance, Proverbs 15, 17, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than, this is a contrasting uh, parallelism right here, than a fattened ox and hatred with it. In other words, it'd be better to have a, little salad and have warmth and happiness than it would be to have, even though we do love ribeye, ribeye with hostility, right? I think people can identify with that, right? Or how about this? He says in Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed up spirit dries up the bones. And, that, and we know that from experience, right? Like our, our, our mental and emotional state does impact us even quite physically, right? He's real about that. And then you have this, Proverbs 11.1, 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Which means the Lord cares about even when we get extra change back, whether we say, hey, you gave me too much change. He cares about those kinds of things, right? So it's very practical. Fourth of all, and this, I think this is huge because people misread Proverbs and get crossways with God over this, Proverbs are principles, not ironclad promises. Does that make sense? 
In other words, Proverbs are true for most people, most all the time, in most every place. But they're not true for all people, all the time, in every place. There are times when things don't work out the way they, we thought they would or hoped they would based on these Proverbs or based on these truths by principle. And that is, by the way, why we have the other books of the wisdom canon. You have Job, for instance. He's a man who, who lived pretty righteously, right? And yet suffered deeply. And even Solomon, at the end of his age, who's likely the writer of Ecclesiastes, says, almost throws his arms up, vanity of vanity, all this vanity. So we read all the Proverbs, we we read the entire canon of wisdom literature, but this year we dive into Proverbs. Principles, not ironclad promises. And finally, just this opening question to answer the question, what is a proverb? They are quite persistent. They are super repetitive. Why? Because we are super stubborn. That's why. So we know something about having to repeat ourselves. Well, God has to repeat himself with us. Now, because of its repetitive nature, I've noticed as I prepare for the series, looking at how other people preached it, that not infrequently, most people will preach Proverbs in maybe five, six, maybe ten sermons out of fear of being repetitive. Well, we may sound repetitive because we're going to actually do one through nine expositionally. They kind of are themes, themes in each chapter. Then 10 through 29 are mostly topical, so we're going to do several topical messages in those chapters, and then we'll finish with chapter 30 and 31, which are more uh, based on expositional preaching. Now, to help mitigate or diminish a, um, a sense of getting bored or overwhelmed, like, oh, no, again, with the, with the persistence here, to keep the persistence fresh, we're going to have a lot of fresh voices preach this series. So at least 40% or at least 10 of these 25 messages will be preached by other men. We have Pastor Nick preaching three messages from this book, Pastor Charles two, Pastor Cleet two, John Glandon one, Dewan Artley one, uh, Brian Evans one, and maybe another pastor friend. All that said though, at the end of the day, keeping this persistent call fresh isn't a matter of who's standing up here. It's a manner of the state of our heart. Do we want to listen and hear instruction? So number one, that answers the question, what is a proverb? Now we dive into the text. We want to answer this question second of all. What is the purpose of Proverbs? What is the purpose of Proverbs? He says in verse 2, to know what? Wisdom. Now, wisdom really means, in a nutshell, skillful living, or the way I would like to put it for this series, right living. Wisdom ultimately is right living. And I emphasize that. That's a word, by the way, wisdom or wise, or some form of that word in Hebrew occurs about 125 times through the book of Proverbs. You'll see it again and again and again. I'm emphasizing what wisdom is, ultimately right living, because um, we could think erroneously that wisdom is merely the, uh, the accumulation of tons of knowledge, right? Tons of knowledge. The more knowledge I get, the better I'll live. 
and we could not be farther from the truth. I recently read that since the history of humanity, all the way to 2003, there were, there have been, there were five exabytes of information recorded. Keep in mind, a billion gigabytes is an exabyte. That's some kind of hard drive. So five billion gigabytes of information, history of humanity, all the way to 2003. Then I read this, that today, every 48 hours, every two days, five exabytes, five billion gigabytes are generated in some form of print media, um, blogs, social media, music, television, all of that, that much, every two days. Now let me ask you this about this information age. Has it made the world a better place? Decidedly, no. Has it made us a better people? Let me just rehearse a few headlines, not of which of all you might be aware of and not which of all every news network uh, covered in the same way. For instance, you had some time ago a mass shooting in the Brooklyn subway. Anybody know about that one? Then you had a mass shooting in a Buffalo supermarket. I heard about that one. Then you had a mass shooting in a Texas school. And last weekend, in Chicago, over Memorial Day weekend, you know how many shootings there were? 51. 43 casualties, 9 deaths. Sounds like a battle report. Has all that information made us better? Has it made the world a better place, more full of shalom? And what's more, I want you to think about how many Christians with all this glut of information are buying into things that if they went to the Word of God, they would see are diametrically opposed to the Word of God. So we are not clearly talking about accumulating knowledge. What we are talking about, biblical wisdom, is this. It's applying, so there's application, there's shoe leather on it, not just any old knowledge, but the right knowledge, but the right knowledge. In fact, the word wisdom is a word that's used in the Old Testament to describe the skill set of artists who would adorn the tabernacle and later the temple. It's a wisdom to use to describe the skill of sailors having the ability to navigate the tough and tumultuous high seas. Roy Zuck put it this way, wisdom means being skilled and successful in one's relationships and one's responsibilities, observing and following the creator's principles of order in the moral universe. So I want to give you an equation. You probably see it on your little outline there, an equation of whose output is right living. I'm going to do this real quick and get to the third point, and then we're going to celebrate communion. Right character plus right thinking equals right living. Can you repeat that with me? Right character plus thinking equals right living. So where's the right character from, Mike? Well, verse 3. He says, to receive instruction in wise dealing, now I, I, I highlight these words, in righteousness, do you see that? In justice, do you see that? And equity. The, by the way, these are, these are attributes of God. 
that he wants to be reflected in us. Character counts. This is character stuff, and God really cares about our character. We can build upon that by going to verse 4, to give prudence. It's a character thing. To the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. There's character stuff there. Character is really important. I don't even need to build that a point more because all through the book, we're going to see a call to godly character. Right character plus right thinking. Where do you see that? Verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 2. To know, so you know up here, right? This is where you think. To know wisdom and instruction. And then he says to understand. Again, where do you understand things? You understand up here. We're talking about thinking. To understand words of insight. And verse 3, to receive instruction in wise dealing. You deal wisely as you think rightly. Now, there's so, so much more I could say about this. But we got 25 messages, too. So I'm going to move on. I just want to make the point that the purpose of Proverbs is to develop in you and I, over our lifetime, right character plus right thinking that produces a life of right living. Is that clear? All right, the final question. Well, what is my responsibility? What is my responsibility in this sermon? in this series, and just in my life altogether? The answer is super clear. We begin in verse 5. He says, let the wise listen or hear. Now, I want to make it clear that in the Hebrew understanding, the word listen or hear isn't just, hey, make sure these audible sounds register in your eardrums, because we can do that all the time. When we, when we say to our children, listen, hear, we're not saying, make sure you, your eardrums register some sound waves, right? We're saying, we want you to obey, we want you to listen. And so biblically, to hear, to listen, is to receive these truths into our head, into our hearts, so that we walk it out with our hands in our lives. That's the idea. Our responsibility is to hear in that biblical way. Then you have this, verse 5. Let the wise hear, we saw that, drop down, and the one who understands, obtain. Do you see that word? We have to obtain guidance. We need guidance. In other words, I need to acknowledge that each and every day of my life, I am up a creek without a paddle if I don't have God's guidance. I need to, to, to crave guidance. I need to obtain guidance. So there's hearing, there's obtaining. Now we jump back up to verse 3, and, he, and it says this, to receive instruction, to receive it. You see that, to receive it. Do I receive instruction? It's the posture of my heart. I want to receive instruction. Do I thirst for instruction? Do I hunger for instruction? Do I seek instruction? Do I pursue God's instruction? If I am not, if you are not, let's not deceive ourselves and think, well, you know, I'm just being neutral about this matter. Let's not deceive ourselves and to say, I'm just kind of innocent, innocently putting this growth thing on hold. No, 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 no. 
Because verse 7 makes it crystal clear what is the opposite of hearing and what is the opposite of obtaining and what is the opposite of receiving. Look at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but what do fools do? What do fools do? They despise wisdom and instruction. So what is the opposite of hearing? What is the opposite of obtaining? What's the opposite of receiving? Despising. There is no middle ground, which then boils down our responsibility to two things. And I think these are very portable. You can hold on to these. First of all, I need to take ownership of my walk with God. My family has a saying uh, when we, we work out, I work out with a few of my kids, that the only one that can get the work in for you is you. Nobody else can work out for you. Same thing, not just with our physicality, but our spirituality. You, you, you can't grow spiritually by proxy. You can't become a Christian by proxy, notwithstanding the practice of some cults, baptizing for another person. It can't, you, you, listen, no aspect of your spiritual walk can be outsourced. It's got to be you. You have to take ownership. And it boils down to four things. There could be others, but here's what came to mind as I was preparing all week. Number one, it means taking ownership with church attendance. Instead of flirting with it, you faithfully and unwaveringly commit to it. That's what it says in Hebrews, right? It says, not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but all the more as you see the day approaching. And that was written to a church that was beleaguered with persecution. We've kind of been through a grinder in this recent season in, in, in our context. So all the more reason to be faithful to the church gathering. Number two, it means taking ownership. It means that you really read and study God's word for yourself. Can we be honest with each other? Our failure, failure to do so is not for lack of time, is it? Can we be honest? Is it really? I mean, we're busy, 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 but is it really for lack of time? Now, I came across this other statistic that every week, the average American citizen is exposed to Again, via some form of social media, watching TV, listening to music, reading printed materials, exposed to 100,000 words every week, every seven-day cycle. And that approximates two books a week, roughly, in the number of words. Which means, if you took that time and put it to book time, you would actually read through the Bible in six weeks because there's about 611,000 words in the English Bible. Now, that sounds kind of ambitious. If you just gave one-fifth of that time to the Scripture, 20%, actually a little less than 20% by way of math, you would read through the Bible in one entire year. Can we really say it's for lack of time? It means taking ownership so that we grow our puny little prayer muscles. Because God said in Christ, Christ said to us, without me, you can do nothing, no thing. 
And taking ownership means we walk with others as intentional discipleship, not just community, but Christ community. The Christian life is not a solo flight. As iron sharpens iron, the proverb says, so one man sharpens another. So it means, first of all, we take ownership. And second of all, this is, this is just basic stuff. It means we be teachable. Look at verse 4. He says, to give prudence to what group of people? To the simple. Now, who exactly is the simple here? It's all of us. The word can be translated as it is often naive or ignorant or simple. And it can have uh, a connotation of sinful simpleness. Not always, but it can. That's us. That's everyone here. Which means we all have a really easy on-ramp <laughs> with this growth thing. Acknowledging I'm simple. And I need to obtain and to hear and to receive. We're often not very teachable, though, right? We're often very proud. We often take this neutral position, which is actually a position of despising. We all do it. My son Titus plays baseball. He's in the second year of organized baseball. He's doing, doing pretty well. Somewhere along the way, he got the idea that if he really wraps his bat way back, he'll hit better. But that's precisely what you don't want to do because there's a longer bat path to the ball. And when the pitching speeds up, you know this, he will not catch up with the pitch. I told him that, and, but no, somewhere along the way, somebody told him, no, Dad, this is the way you're supposed to do it. <laughs> I'm no expert in baseball. but been in baseball most of my life, coaching, playing, etc. And you don't want to do that. Here, this sweet, little, not so little anymore, but little, stubborn boy is telling me the best way to swing a baseball bat after two years of rec league. And that, I maintain, is all of us with God. Because we go so many directions for answers to God's problem. God, you really don't know best. This guy told me this. So, so, so here's the issue. What we do with our simplicity, can we acknowledge it, determines whether we're going to choose habitually the way of wisdom or the way of folly. And it won't be a mystery because your life will declare it. And that takes us to the last verse of this opening passage, this introductory message Verse 7, chapter 1, which really is Proverbs distilled down to a single drop. And I love this Proverbs because what you've heard to this point, it should not, but could, but could potentially lead you to kind of moralism. This verse decidedly takes us away from, you know what moralism is? Moralism is trying to do good in your own strength for your own good. Trying to do good in your own strength for your own good. And that is double decidedly self-dependent, right? But also self-centered. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the first thing. But not first thing like, oh, check that box, now off to other stuff. No, the, the, the idea in the Hebrew there, it is the foundation of this pursuit, a foundation that you never leave. I don't have time for this, but if you were to, tra to trace all through the book of Proverbs the expression, the fear of the Lord 
you would find this. By the way, what is the fear of the Lord? There's tons of definitions for that, but I'm just going to go with this. A holy awe of God. A holy awe of the living God. And were you to trace it out through the book of Proverbs, you would find that the fear of the Lord does this. It makes us repentant. Chapter 3, verse 7. We'll never grow without repentance. We'll never need to stop repenting. It makes us decisive, not compromising with sin. Proverbs 8, 13. It makes us confident. Proverbs 14, 26. It refreshes us. Chapter 14, verse 27. It makes us humble. Chapter 15, verse 33. And it satisfies, according to Proverbs 15, 19, 23. Derek Kidner calls the fear of the Lord a worshipful submission to God. You know what? We've all been pretty simple. We've all flunked that, haven't we? We all shanked that, right? But there is one who did not. Little verse, little portion of a verse I bypassed at the top of this passage, but it connects us to the storyline of Scripture. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, and who does it identify him as? Who does it say he is? Son of David, king of Israel. But you know what? Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the king of Israel. As we sang, he is not only the king of Israel, he is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Solomon may have deeply contemplated trees and mountains and life experiences and tables and dinners and all that, but Jesus created them all. That's him. He's the creator. And it says in Luke 31, remember the queen of Sheba who went after Solomon to get some wisdom? Remember that story? In Luke 11.31, it says, the queen of the south is going to rise up in judgment against the men of this generation. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to seek the wisdom of Solomon. And when Jesus came, it says, one greater than Solomon is here, Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. Colossians 2 verse 3 says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, we remember this, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to us who are called, Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And in the wisdom of God, Christ died for our willful simplicity for our sinfulness, that we might receive the righteousness of Christ and having become new creations in Christ to embark on a life of building right character and right thinking that produces a life of right living, ultimately not for our good, but for the glory of God. So, who needs him? Who needs the wisdom of God incarnate. If you've never trusted him, I just want to remind you, he lived a life you did not live, and he died the death that you should die, so you don't have to die, and he rose again, and he offers himself to you. And we're going to keep on saying that all the time. We're going to keep on telling our children that. We're going to keep on telling ourselves that. Every sinner needs Jesus, first of all, to be saved. That cannot be outsourced. 
It doesn't happen because you become a member of a church or you got baptized. It happens because you say, woe is me for I'm a sinner undone. And you see your sin, you see the judgment of God rearing down in your sin, but you see Jesus stepping in the way in love so that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Who else needs him? Verse 4, young believers. It says, to the youth. Yeah, you're saying as an older people, those, those young, young people are so ignorant. I was so foolish when I was young, but now I'm so smart. No, we don't get off the hook either. Because what does he say? Let the wise hear. Right? People have maybe moved along in their faith a little bit, as we should. Increase in learning. And the one who understands or already understands, don't stop obtaining guidance. In other words, we never graduate from the school of wisdom this side of glory. Have you taken a semester or two off? Do you need to re-enroll? We are not nearly as wise as we think we are, even if we put ourselves in that category. I'm appalled at some of the things in this latest season of my life that have tempted me, frankly, that I thought were battles of the past. I'm still simple, and so are you. Thankfully, this man receives sinners. Father, would you use these words and these truths to compel us to seek right character and right thinking that we might have a life of right living, that we would take ownership and be teachable, every one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, and to do so not for our own good, through our own efforts, but in dependence on you, ultimately for your glory. May you storm our hearts with the fear of the Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So if the music team would come and we're going to take the Lord's Supper right now. I, I have to believe, because I know. Like, I'll be honest with you, some messages I, I prepare, it's kind of like taking a soothing swim in a mountain lake. Other messages are like going 15 rounds with Mike Tyson in his, pro, in his prime. Even my ear bitten off, perhaps. Um, that's what this was like. I mean, you know, I'm, like, I'm just so convicted. So I'm like, oh, Lord, I have, I'm an idolater. I, I, I shut my ears all the time and all that. And I suspect maybe there's one or two of you here would be the same way. A message like this really can churn things up, right? Now, conviction God brings is not just for our obedience. He wants your obedience, but also for your good. And not for your good ultimately, but for his glory. So if he has convicted you, why don't you just spend a few minutes confessing that and then determining committing to by the power of the Spirit of those things I talked about. Taking ownership right out of the text, right? And being teachable. So if we'd have one group line up right here, one group, group line up right here, just grab the elements. Uh, we're still doing these elements, but somehow lining up reminds us this is not just me and Jesus alone, but it's us and Jesus. It's a communal thing. So line up here and line up here. Come and grab the elements. Um, you can grab them. Go back to your seat while you hear the uh, music in the background, just, just talk to the Lord and confess what you need to confess. Um, just confess, yeah. Um, 
And then, and then in just a few minutes, we will, we will enjoy the elements together, reminding us of the blood and body of Christ.